If you build it, he will come. Obviously a play off of uh, Field of Dreams with Kevin Costner and those folks. But as I was studying today's passage of Ezra, that's the, the theme that came to my mind. So before we get any further, uh, it's never too, too much prayer, okay? Lord Jesus, we now open up ourselves, our minds, our hearts to hearing you through your word. We've heard you already this morning. We've sensed your presence. We've experienced the, the uh, touch of your Holy Spirit. And, and now we, we put ourselves in a posture that we would hear your voice through your word, through your saints of old. And so help us to see. Help us to see what you want us to see and hear what you want us to hear. And I pray that you'd help me to say what you want me to say this morning. I pray for the anointing of your Holy Spirit to do just that. I pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Yes, if you build it, he will come. This is our study in the book of Ezra. This is part three. We obviously began with a a uh, one Sunday just dealing with an introduction, but this is actually part three of studying the book. And so uh, you can go back and get those messages in various forms. But today we're dealing with, and in a moment I'm going to turn to, have you turn to Ezekiel, Ezekiel, won't do that, Ezra 3. Uh, and then, uh, but we're t- at this passage we see the beginning of the building of the temple. We set up the foundation of, of the foundation last week and the week before. But uh, the scripture says, and we'll read it in a moment, that Zerubbabel and Jeshua made a beginning. In other words, a lot of your Bibles there will say began the work. So now that we've dealt with the priorities of worship, and as Roger said, the rhythms of worship, now that we've dealt with what was really, really important, now we're going to put our hands to the actual building of the temple. And this is important to them, uh, and it's important to us, because the building of the temple is where God had dwelled and would dwell among them. That was why this was such an important thing. Uh, when they were when they were in captivity, they were not in a place where there would be a temple or where there would be a, any any structure, any place of gathering corporately to experience God's presence. But now they had the opportunity to rebuild the, the uh, temple that had been destroyed and create this in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, create this physical structure where God would come and dwell. This was important. That should be important to us. The foundation for this temple was more than bricks and mortar and whatever else they might use, but it was a result of the observance of the law and obedience to earlier scriptures. Why is that important? Because the New Testament temple, the temple today, and we'll, we'll get back to this, but it's built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets and here's the key with chief, with Christ Jesus being the chief, everybody say chief, chief. cornerstone. Amen. Built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus being the chief cornerstone. And so 
The structure today, and again, we'll come back to this, but it's not a physical structure. I mean, we have physical structures, but that's just to keep the rain off of us and keep the cold out there and the heat in here. And some of you say, well, we don't always do that. But anyway, uh, but that's just all this does. But in that day, that structure was where God actually dwelled in the Holy of Holies. And so here we go. Ezra, I keep wanting to say Ezekiel, you have all these EZs. But Ezra chapter 3, verse 8 is where I'm going to begin reading today. And barring the unforeseen, uh, we will finish chapter 3 today believe it or not. So if you wouldn't mind standing while I read these verses. Now in this, and again, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Now in the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jehozadak, or some of your Bibles will say Jehozadak or Jehozadak, made a beginning. Together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, in all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity, they appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua with his sons and his brothers and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Henadad and the Levites, uh, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping, for the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. You could be seated. And as I said, the, the key to this temple, the key to the rebuilding of this temple, is the idea of God among us. God among us. Now, God has always wanted and desired to be among us. He's always desired to live among us and to dwell among us. We see before the fall, we see Adam and Eve walking with God. It said every day in the cool of the day in the garden and fellowshipping with one another. Now, God's desire to be among us is not because he was missing something, but because we were missing something. What we were missing is him. And so God's, you know, we were just saying he's for you. And because he's for you, he wants you to experience him. Because experiencing him is the best thing that will ever happen to your life. He doesn't necessarily need anything from us. He is complete within himself. But we need what he brings to the relationship. And recorded in... Leviticus 26, and then referenced by Paul 
in Second Corinthians six sixteen, it's, it says, "We are the temple of the living God." We, everybody, say we. we. See, we no building now. We are the temple of the living God. And then he quotes Leviticus, "I will make my dwelling among them, and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." Since since the earliest of times, God has stated that his desire is to be among his people, to dwell among his people. And because of the sin of Adam and Eve, he set up a system that by which we could worship God through the through the temple, through the holy place, the holy of holies, through the priesthood. And, of course, we know now that that was a shadow and a foretelling of what was to come. And, of course, we've been quoting Augustine through this whole thing that the old is the new concealed or revealed and the new is the old revealed. And so as we go through this, we want to see what's happened in the old, but we want to see how to, how that becomes revealed in the new. And that new covenant, new testament, new, new, uh, uh, anyway. And so we think of this word, when we think about God among us, we think about the name Emmanuel or Emmanuel, depending on how you want to spell it. There's absolutely no difference in the meanings. But Isaiah 7, 14 and also Matthew 1, 23 gives us this. And this we hear it a lot at Christmas, but you're going to hear it today, even though it's not Christmas. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Why are we building a temple in Ezra? Because God with us is important. God with us is the goal. Rebuilding the temple was a practical demonstration of their desire for God to live among them. They weren't just building a temple so they could say, what a nice structure we build. They weren't just building this building so they could win an award with better homes and gardens. They were building this temple because this is where God was going to come live among them. Amen. It was a visible sign of God dwelling among his people. And so, of course, we've been singing and words have been delivered all the way around my message this morning. So here we go. God's presence. God's presence is what's key to this whole thing. Amen. It's not, again, not just something, some religious artifact. But we're talking about God's presence. God's presence is so important. They understood God's presence was so important that when Moses was having a conversation with God and God said, uh, my, my presence, Moses said, let your presence go with us because if your presence doesn't go with us, we're not moving from this spot. And then he made this statement. In Exodus, boy, all these Ezra and Ezekiel and Exodus. But I got it right this time. 33.16, he said, your presence among us sets your people and me apart from all other people on the earth. The one thing that separates us, the one thing that gives God's people distinctiveness is his presence. All other religions, all other whatever you want to call them, when you examine 
the tenets of their faith, when you examine what they do, why they do, and when they do it, you will discover not one of them can speak of the presence of their God, little g. Not one. But we talk about God's presence. But even in the old covenant, God's presence was so important, and it was so important to Moses. And he said, the one thing that distinguishes us from all the other people is your presence. So we're not moving without your presence. God's presence is not only something that gives his people distinctiveness, but it, but it brings us, scripture says, fullness of joy. When David wrote, until I, uh, in your presence, there's fullness of joy. Now, David was not filled with the Holy Spirit like we are. He, he did not have the indwelling that we have. And yet he still enjoyed God's presence. And in that presence, he found joy. And then I'm reminded that the joy of the Lord is our strength. We move. Not only does God's presence bring us to a place of joy and strength, but a place with eyes of revelation and perspective. You remember Asaph in Psalm 73 who who was in the mully grubs and was complaining in the first 16 verses of 73. He saw the other people and the, the worldly people and the pagans, and he said, man, they got it better than I do. They got a, a nicer car and a nicer house, and they make more money than I do. And everything everything about the the adversaries was appealing to him, and it, and it made him mad that they had all of that. And then in verse 17, he said this, until I went into the sanctuary of God, the presence of God, then I understood. In God's presence, in his glory, is where we see with eyes that we couldn't see before. He said, then I understood. And he goes on to say, I understood their end. I understood their destiny. But all he could see in the first 16 verses of that psalm was his own image in the mirror of suffering and lack. Now, this is not, we're not going to spend much time here, but I needed to spend just a moment on this, how to be in God's presence, how to find yourself in God's presence. Because you you can't wait, as as Roger or somebody said, you can't wait till Sunday morning. You want to be in God's presence? It's real simple. Psalm 100. Number one, enter his gates with thanksgiving. If you will take a moment, I don't care where, where you are. If you will take a moment or a few moments and you will begin to, to offer thanks and gratitude to God. So I don't have anything to be grateful for. Then you not need to do some examining. By the way, uh, Roger talked about communion not becoming rote and becoming just a religious activity. There's a reason that we're told in the scriptures when we're coming to the Lord's table to examine ourselves. There's a reason for that. And that's so when we come to the table, we're coming with our heart and not just through exercises. We're always... Oh, anytime you know, anytime you see the baskets up here or, or you're having communion in any other setting, 
you make sure you take a moment and examine your own heart. And if you see something or feel something, then ask God to forgive you and repent so you don't come to the table with just some religious action. If you'll examine your heart, you'll never come to the Lord's table with just doing a religious thing. That's extra. I didn't have it in my notes. Enter his gates with thanksgiving. You will never enter his gates without thanksgiving. And when you begin to thank God, when you begin to offer gratitude for what he has done and is doing in your life, you, your, your attention will be drawn away from all the stuff that concerns you. All the stuff that you see negative in your life. All the stuff that it feels like God has has abandoned you. And of course, we've already heard numerous times today that God never will abandon us. If if you don't feel close to God, then guess who moved? It wasn't him. He also said, enter his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Once again, if you're praising God, you're not praising your problems. If you're praising God, you're not focusing on what you lack and you don't, you're not focusing on what you think he ought to do and you're not focusing on where you ought to be. But if you're praising God, then all of your focus is on him and you'll find yourself in his presence. Thanksgiving and praise will bring you from that negative place in your life to a positive place of God's presence. Robert Fial, who, again, we're quoting from his book, Ezra and Haggai, said this. We see their purpose in returning was to rebuild the house of God and therefore bring the Lord once again. Everybody say once again. Can you put yourself in their position? They've, they've got 70 years without the presence of God. You and I should never go seven minutes. Without the, they, he said, we see their purpose in returning was to rebuild the house of God and therefore bring the Lord once again right into the heart of where his people lived. This is not only their purpose, but it's God's purpose that he would find a way under that structure, under that advent to be right in the middle of where they live, to be accessible through a complicated system nonetheless, but accessible to the people of God and the presence. I noted that in verse 8, it said all who had come, the ones who were rebuilding the temple were all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. Guess who comes to God? Guess who comes to God Worshiping. Guess who comes to God seeking his presence? Guess who comes to God looking for God among us? It's those of us who one time were in captivity. Because if you don't know, if you don't really feel like you've been in captivity, well, then you don't feel like you've been delivered. But we know better. We sung it today. The, the, the price was paid in full. And because of that, because of our former captivity and and our current state of being delivered, we want to do whatever it is to rebuild the temple. And then there's this, this importance of order. Sometimes we, let me say this, order is not the enemy of spontaneity. 
And spontaneity is not the enemy of order. But we see order. We see the importance of leadership and united efforts among these people in when they began to rebuild the temples. This was a communal endeavor. But it wasn't just everybody grab a shovel and go do something. It, it didn't work that way. But uh, Zerubbabel and Jeshua, they appointed the workers. They appointed them. And, of course, it says they appointed the Levites to supervise the Levitical priesthood. And then Jeshua and his sons and brothers, they supervised the workmen. So there's a supervisor, but there's also a supervisor of the work. There's an order to what God's doing. There's an arrangement. There's a structure. By the way, these were not hasty or random appointments. They didn't just, you know, flip a whatever coin they had. They didn't just draw straws. There was God's input into appointing the workers here. And you do that. You go over there and you take care of that. You supervise the workers and everything has an order. And so this becomes an exercise in unity and harmony. Verse 9 is an interesting verse in the English Standard Version. Uh, it says, uh, Jeshua and his sons, his brothers, Cadmiel, his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised. Together. Some versions there will say arose together. Some versions will say stood together. In the Greek, it's literally, I mean, sorry, in the Hebrew, it's literally, they stood as one. They stood as one. Whatever we endeavor to accomplish for God, whatever we endeavor to quote unquote build for God, we must stand as one. The body of Christ must stand as one to the degree that the body of Christ, the church of Jesus Christ, will stand as one person. It's to that same degree that we will have major impact on our culture. The problem is the world is watching. <laughs> and not only are we not standing as one, but we are, in, again, this great theological term, yay-yay at one another <laughs> and competing with one another. And claiming that we have the best church to one another. And the world says, why would I want that? But this group of guys, it says they stood together. They stood as one. This is how they accomplished. Which, of course, hearkens the psalmist who said, behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers. And by the way, the word their brothers is literally members of the same family. Members of the same family dwell in unity. Dwell in unity. If we're going to accomplish anything, of course, we're not, you know, we're not, we build buildings today, but that's not, we build buildings to facilitate the building of the organic church that we can't see with our eye except that it's human beings. And when we're building God's church, when we're working for God's kingdom, what we're, when we apply ourselves, the, if we have unity, and orderly effort, we will accomplish that. Now, here's you an interesting passage of Scripture. Uh, you don't have to turn. I'll put a couple of verses on the screen. From Joel chapter 2, uh, by the way, this passage 
is describing locusts. <laughs> How in the why would God use locusts to teach us a lesson? Well, one day you ask him. Because <laughs> that's the only way you go anyway. But in the, in the midst of the, describing these locusts and, and how they were being used by God, this, we see these verses. They march each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. I want to be who you are. I think I ought to be whatever you are. Anyway. Each marches in his path. Later in that passage, it refers to this swarm of locusts as God's army. Now, forget the fact that they're bugs. And look at how God honors their orderliness. They marched on their own way. They did not swerve from their own paths. They didn't jostle one another, seeking to be who they weren't. And each marched in his own path. And when these guys, and ladies I'm sure, were building this temple and digging this foundation, they worked together. They worked in order, in an orderly fashion. Another example is uh, Matthias. We get to the book of Acts chapter 1. Peter stands up and says, because to fulfill the scriptures, and he begins to describe Judas and what happened with Judas and how he bought a field and and he said uh, and the, to fulfill this, we must. The scripture says to let another take his office. Let another. So Peter, here's what I think is happening. Peter is standing up. Jesus has said, "Go." to Jerusalem, and you wait until the Holy Spirit comes. And Peter, in his mind, thinks, he says this, we must. Watch this. We, one of these men must, everybody say must, become with us a witness of his resurrection. I don't know the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask it. If they had not gotten things in order, because that's what he was doing here. He was getting a whole situation in order. Without replacing Judas, they are ignoring the scripture. Let another take his office. And Peter said, we must. It's not an option. It's not a good idea. We must become, these. one of these men must become with us a witness of his resurrection. Of course, Matthias had been there since the beginning. And so there was this, in my opinion, this order that was addressed. First Corinthians fourteen fifty says, all things should be done decently and in order. Amen. And what's interesting about that verse is at the end of a chapter that deals with the proper exercise of the gifts of the spirit. As a matter of fact, he had just written, do not forbid people to speak in tongues, but to prophesy. Let them prophesy and don't forbid people to speak in tongues. So you can have the supernatural and the gifts of the spirit and have order because then he says, but let all, all things, and I think all things probably covers all things. <laughs> 
all things be done decently and in order. And that's why I say spontaneity does not, is not the enemy of order, and order is not the enemy of spontaneity. I learned this in athletics when I was a kid. Played a lot of sports. I loved baseball. And so I played baseball. And I remember playing left field in Little League. And uh, the coach during a game called timeout, did this to me. Well, what it was was his son, one of his sons was pitching, who I just saw at our 50-year high school reunion, by the way. But anyway, he was pitching, and uh, his younger brother was catching. And his younger brother was crying. Tears coming down his cheek because his hand was hurting so bad. And they want me to go up there anyway. So, yes, he does this. I go up, put on the catcher's gear. And, from, and of course, I had a little sponge, round sponge about that thick that I shoved in the catcher's mitt because the boy threw hard. And when you got done, your hand would be swollen right there from catching for him. But I got on the catcher's gear. Got behind the plate, and I was the catcher from then on, except when I was pitching. What if I'd have said to the coach, I'll be happy to play catcher, and I squatted in left field? <laughs> now, how, I mean, how stupid would that have been? Oh, I ran to, and I put the gear on. And I pitched quite a bit in Little League, uh, so... What about the coach says, okay, today you're pitching. Okay. So I put on all the catcher's equipment and go stand on the pitcher's mouth. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, today they're probably they're so worried about kids getting injured, they, they just about do that. But anyway, that's another topic for another day. But there, there was no way that was going to work because there had to be some order to what we were doing. I thought about when God said, let there be light. And let there be water and let there be the firm, let there be all of these things. What if God would have been lazy or maybe, uh, ADD? I don't know. And he'd have just said, let there be everything. Why didn't he say, let there be everything? And just, it's all here. The only answer I have for you is God is a God of order. Amen. And he went, let there be light and then let there be, let there be. He, he did everything in order. Amen. And then, okay, now we're going to create human beings. All of it in order. We've got to see that if whatever endeavor we are trying for God, we must see that it's orderly and efficient. Which brings us to this topic. Celebration of praise in song. Like I said, we've been singing all over my message this morning. Celebration of praise and song. So they, when they saw, this is interesting. They were so elated at just the completion of the foundation. Everybody, anybody ever walked out on a job site and you saw a foundation and you just get chill bumps? I mean, other than it's probably your house being built. But other than that, you look at the foundation and say, man. That is so beautiful. I just can't stand the beauty of this foundation. 
I mean, today when you do a foundation, you you dig a trench. At least when I built houses, you dig, you dig a trench and you put some wire in there and you pour some concrete and you flatten it out so you can lay the block or the brick on that thing so it'll support it. But you, when you walk up and you look at that concrete in that ditch, you never walk up there and think, "Boy, that's serious. That's serious, pretty." <laughs> but they were so elated at just the foundation. That they brought out their vestments. They brought out their instruments, their trumpets, their cymbals. They said, we're going to have a party. Look at that foundation. You ever seen such a foundation? What, why, why were they so excited? It wasn't the foundation. It was they were that much closer to God among us. They, they came forward. The scripture says they came forward to praise the Lord. And they're praising God. And the word praise there is halal, H-A-L-A-L. In one place in the Bible, that word is translated to act insanely. (laughs) So some of you I've seen praising God. (laughs) Another thing to point out is they did this, watch this, according to the directions of David, king of Israel. They did it according to his directions. Again, orderliness, scriptures. That's that's uh, 1 Chronicles 6 if you're taking notes. Another thing it says, they sang responsively. They sang responsively. You know, when I was growing up, we didn't do this so much in the Baptist church, but I spent the first 12 years of my life in a Methodist church. And we did what we call responsive reading. Some of you have done that. And the, the, the worship pastor, worship leader, whatever we called them back then, probably called them song leader. But anyway, they would say, turn to the back of the hymnal. And you'd turn to the back of the hymnal, and you'd have these things called responsive readings. And they'd say, okay, I'm going to read this, and you're going to read that. And you, they'd read something, you'd read something. They'd read something, and you were, you were responding back and forth. That's kind of what this is. As a matter of fact, uh, it really means when it says they sang responsively, what it really means is they replied to one another. They were singing to one another. They were praising God. Of course, they were praising to God, but they were also replying to one another. Watch this song. I will tell of your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. When we gather together, whether it's in this room or a small group or a whatever setting, and we will begin to praise God, we are, our direction is toward God, but guess who's listening? Everybody else. There's this matter of singing responsibly. It tells us and teaches us that we're, it's not just an individual relationship with God, although that's important. Because there wouldn't be anything else without it. But there's also a corporate relationship with God that's necessary. This necessitates a corporate expression and a corporate dialogue of revelation and response. Somehow, when we get together to praise God, we're singing to one another. You, know, you may, is somebody, you may come in here depressed or anxious or whatever may be the case and you can't even sing. All of a sudden you hear somebody singing and you go, man, that's so good. 
That's good right there. Of course, now sometimes you hear somebody singing and you think that's not so good. But that's all right. God loves a, well, I guess he, lo- he loves a joyful sound or something. Anyway, they sang this. This is what they sang. For he is good. And for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. Now, this occurs at least five other times in the scripture. Five other exact quote. For he is good. And good here is not just that he's, he gives us what we want, but it really means, really the word there means pleasant or pleased. It means that God is pleasant or agreeable. And, and it speaks of the pleasure of God our creator as he rejoices in what he has made. It means that God is, uh, is uh, we bring pleasure to him as his creation, for he is good. It also says that his steadfast love. When we talk about God being good, think about it this way. If I say to you, do you need anything Is everything all right with you? And sometimes people will say this, oh, I'm good. I'm good. And that's what it means when it says God is good. He, Are you happy with your creation? Are you pleased? And God says, yeah, I'm good. And it also says he's steadfast. His love is steadfast. Steadfast is hesed. I can't say it like you should. If Avi was with us, he could teach us how to say it. But it. It's a word, it's really the Hebrew counterpart to our word, the Greek word agape, which we know very well and we use quite a bit. Agape, and but both of them just mean God's unconditional, long-suffering love. It's where the faithfulness of God evokes from us a response as human beings, a response of faith. And then it says they shouted a great shout. So they're already praising God and acting insanely. And then they shouted a great shout because of this foundation. Why? They saw in the future. They saw ahead. They saw God among us. Some of them wept. There's a lot of uh, opinions about why the older people were weeping. Some of them, they thought, might have been weeping because I, mean, I don't know how you can weep at a foundation. But some of them saw the foundation, and, and it wasn't the same as it was because they had been old enough to see near the end of the temple. Some some people think they were weeping because of joy at the rebuilding of the temple. I don't think it really matters. But we do see in Haggai 2.9, which is a parallel book to this book, the latter glory of this house, the one they were building, will be greater than the former, says the Lord. And in this place, I will give you peace, declares the Lord of hosts. I will give you peace, which may, one of the things that makes this latter temple, the latter glory greater than the former, is he said, I'll give you peace. And just about anybody that you want to read will tell you that that's, that's referring to the Prince of Peace, the Prince of Peace. And finally, bringing this into the New Testament, Jesus building his church. He said, Matthew 16, I will build my church. And then as he is building his church, he begins to appoint. He made appointments. Remember, Jeshua and Zerubbabel appointed the workers. He made appointments to enable his church to grow. 
And Ephesians 4.11 tells us some of those appointments. He says that he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints. Jesus said, we're going to build a temple, but the temple is not a physical structure. The temple, and we'll get back to that, is God's people. Or did I skip that? Well, anyway, the the temple today is our bodies and the collective of God's people organically joined together. And so he establishes this, this uh, what we call, some people call it the five-fold ministry. Some people call it, I call it the leadership gifts. Uh, it doesn't matter what you call it. God appointed workers to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. And then 1 Corinthians, he said, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? So we're the temple and we're the temple. Or you're the temple and we're the temple. And so you take what they're doing in Ezra, translate that here. And we're going to finish. If you wouldn't mind turning with me to Ephesians 2, and we're going to finish up, believe it or not. Back in the fall, I spent some time talking about living stones. I had no idea that we'd be here today talking about this. But we talked about living stones, and we talked about this passage some, but I wanted to read it. Ephesians 2, verse 19, it said, or says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone or the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Do you see, do you see God's people growing together as a holy temple to God? And he says, in him, in him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God. By the Spirit. Building the foundation for the temple. Jesus building his church. There's so many parallels. But we have to see our side or this side of the cross. We have to see that he is growing us together as that holy temple. And we have to see that he's building us together as a dwelling place for God a dwelling place hopefully as we continue on and we see the actual temple we'll, we, uh, next time we'll see some opposition to this but we'll begin to more and more see how our part of this our side of the, of the cross relates to what they did in Ezra because it, the whole thing is a shadow 
of what is to come. Amen? Stand with me.